Welcome to First They Came for the Immigrants. Immigrants and asylum seekers are under attack in the U.S., and so is our democracy. In today's episode, our host Virginia Raymond speaks with Patricia Ice about the work of the Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance. Hello, Patricia. Hi, how are you, Virginia? (laughs) I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really grateful that you're here. And I um, am pleased and honored to introduce our listeners to my friend and colleague, Patricia Ice of the Mississippi Immigrants' Rights Alliance. They're in Jackson, Mississippi. Am I right? That's correct. Awesome. So um, I'm really grateful that you're here, Patricia, and wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Mississippi Rights Immigr- Immigrants' Rights Alliance and how you started. The Mississippi Immigrants' Rights Alliance started in the fall of 2000, And unfortunately, I did not make the first meeting. It was in November of 2000 because I was out of town. But it was founded by my husband, Bill Chandler, and several other people from other organizations. Um, One was the... uh, the United Methodist Church Hispanic Ministries of Mississippi, the Catholic Diocese of Jackson, Mississippi. There was a state representative, Jim Evans, who also is the represent who also was at the time the representative for the AFL CIO here in uh, Mississippi. But anyway, um, I attended that meeting. I spoke about the work that I was already doing out in Scott County. And then I listened to them and, you know, heard about the issues that they were facing. And eventually we came up with a name, the uh, Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance, which we call MIRA for short, M-I-R-A which means look in Spanish. And we uh, filed to become a 501c3 organization, which is a nonprofit charitable organization. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, it's really fun and interesting to hear how these different forces and events shaped the growth of the organization as well as your relationship. Um, it's, it's fabulous. And, and the confluence of labor organizations and churches is also particularly interesting to me. I want to go back and in 2000 or 2001, when you and Bill Chandler were lobbying in the Mississippi state legislature, what kinds of measures were you hoping to achieve what kinds of bills? The first thing, the first couple of things that we really worked on were um, trying to get, one was trying to get a driver's license bill um, so that immigrants could get a driver's license because some states were, um, were passing bills and legislation for immigrants to get driver's licenses because 
a lot of the people we were working with were undocumented. They were working and they needed to drive. And at first we got some momentum in the state legislature from people, from members of the legislature who owned insurance companies because it was going to be to their advantage to have immigrants get driver's licenses because then they would have to have insurance. And at first they got behind us, but then they started getting attacked by other uh, people, notably, uh, you know, mainly Republicans. And so they backed off because those insurance agents backed off because they didn't want to be seen as pro-undocumented immigrant. And so um, we've, we've had people introduce a bill for driver's licenses almost every year since 2001. Wow. And, we had, and it has never passed. Wow. You would so, think it would be to everybody's benefit to have people have to learn to drive, take a written test, take a practical test, have insurance, um, and have that. You're right, Virginia. <laughs> You're right. And to this day, I do not understand why we cannot get that passed. But several other states have have passed that. Another thing that we worked on was getting alternatives to having a having a birth certificate for a child to get into school. Because as I mentioned earlier, um, some of the some of the complaints that we received that helped uh, us create Mira um, were that schools were not allowing children to enter the schools because either they didn't have a birth certificate, uh, they didn't have social security numbers. So we were able to get a legislator, um, actually she was a state senator her name is Alice Harden. She is African-American. She's actually, she passed away a few years ago, but she introduced legislation to get alternative proof of birth and that, and in that we were successful. And we also were able to tell the various um, boards of education and the state board of education about the case Plyler versus Doe, which is a United States Supreme Court case that came out in 1982. That was a Texas case. So I know that you know a lot about that case. Yes. June and, 15th, 1982. Okay. I didn't know the date. <laughs> that's the same. That's the same date as DACA, June 15th. Not it's 19th. a good month. <laughs> anyway, um, so we had to tell the different boards of education throughout the state about Plyler versus Doe. And what that case holds is that all children, you know, during the ages of K through 12 have to be allowed to go to school, whether they have a social security or not, even if they're undocumented. They have to be able to go to public schools. Right. Um, 
And so we had to educate the different boards of education about that case because they had never heard of it for the most part. And so once we started educating them about that, and that took uh, telephone calls that we made to the state board of education. Um, I also called local boards of education, Bill called as well. And we were able to finally make them understand that they had to admit these children. And then the state legislature came up with a law that allowed um, parents to present affidavits for their children um, if the child did not have a birth certificate. Bravo, bravo, Patricia <laughs> and Mira. That was something that we did. That was one of the main things that we did. But some of the things that we, some of the other things that we also did over the years was that we were able to defeat about 300 anti-immigrant bills here in Mississippi. Um, because a flurry of bills started, you know, start, started happening here in Mississippi, just like in other states. And so we were able to fight back those bills by having a great rela relationship with the press, um, with uh, TV news, with print news, uh, radio news, mm -hmm. all the uh, reporters in the area well, all the news media outlets in the area know about our organization. And what happens now is that when there is some type of immigration issue that has come to the forefront, they call us. And I wanna say something about the, uh, the black community because in Mississippi, we felt that we could not uh, advance the interest of the immigrant community without involving the black community. And Bill had long been involved with the black community. Bill, Bill Chandler came here 32 years ago. He, he moved here from Texas. I moved here 22 years ago and almost it's almost 23. Um, Cause I moved, I came to Mississippi on February 2nd, 1998. I remember I drove here, I was single. Um, and I took a job at the uh, Mississippi College School of Law as a reference librarian oh, because wow. I had just gotten a master's in library science. Oh, wow. Information science. Um Virginia, I always had one foot in and one foot out of the law. <laughs> and I was often looking for things to do outside of the law until I started doing immigration law, which I started in Michigan, which is my home. And that was, I went to my first American Immigration Lawyers Association conference, and we call that organization AILA for short, in 1993. And the conference happened to be in Toronto. 
And I stayed in a youth hostel with all these other people in my room who were not connected with Ayla because everybody who was connected with Ayla had a lot of money. Um, and they were able to stay in the conference hotel. But I went and I found the sessions, the continuing legal education sessions to be fabulous, fantastic. And I said, I think I can do this. I think I can do this kind of work. So I took my first immigration law cases in 1994 in uh, Detroit. A friend of mine, a friend of my family's who has since passed away, had an office. She was an attorney. She also had a PhD and she used an office in Michigan to write books, mainly to write books because she really didn't practice. And she gave me that office space. So I had an office and I started seeing clients mainly from West Africa because I had been a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, the country of Benin in West Africa. And I knew uh, quite a few Africans in the Detroit area. So I started working on their cases and I started, uh, I met some people from India and I met some people from Pakistan. And so I started working on their cases and I did my first asylum case in Michigan. And that was for a man from Cameroon who um, had been a student in Cameroon and he had been arrested and he had, uh, you know, he had been released. He was protest. He had been protesting against the government there. And he ended up making his way to the Detroit area because he had relatives there. And so we filed a, an affirmative asylum case mm -hmm. and we won the case. Bravo. And that was really, that was really exciting because at the time there was no uh, asylum office in Detroit. We didn't have an immigration court in Detroit as well. So everything we did, we did in Chicago. I think I was talking about the black brown connection, yes. which is really important. Yes. To our work. So and you, the connection that we made. Yes. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. We felt that it was important to have a, you know, to have this black brown connection. So when we started the organization, there were um, several Black people who came to those first couple of meetings from, uh, you know, from unions, from churches, etc. And so we felt that that was really important. And we felt that it was really important to educate Black people about the issues that immigrants had because they were similar issues to the issues that we had. Um, we had definitely been discriminated against in this country and so had immigrants. And there was so much that I learned actually from Bill Chandler who had grown up in, um, in California. He was born and raised in California and he was born 
in the 40s. And so there were a lot of things that he knew about as a child that had happened to Latinos in California. And then he worked in Texas for almost 20 years. So he and he he just, you know, really opened my eyes to stories of lynchings of uh, Latinos and others in California and in Texas. And so I came to understand that our uh, struggles were very similar, you know, if not the same. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was we tried to educate um, Black people here in Mississippi and I think we've been successful in educating them by having meetings, by having uh, the organizations be involved in our civic engagement day that we do every year. Um, and usually we have a civic engagement. Well, we ha we've had them, I don't know how many years, many years, um, every year during the legislative session mm -hmm. in Mississippi. So let's go to 2008. Um, okay. I want to talk about both of the big raids um, mm -hmm. uh, in 2008 and in 2019, right? Okay. So in 2008, um, you know, that's the year that they passed the, um, the Mississippi Employment Protection Act that I was telling you about. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot, a, a lot of uh, issues with immigration across the country, because I think that's when they passed the Arizona law and the Alabama law, and so there was just a lot going on. So this raid happened, I believe it was in August, and we had heard through our organizers rumblings about a possible raid. And so we heard it through people who were like housekeepers who were working at hotels because they were telling our organizers that ICE or other, you know, whoever, whoever, whatever the organization, because they also, the Homeland Security Investigations, I know they were involved in the last one. They were really huge in the last one. Anyway, the these housekeepers were telling us that they were renting rooms at these hotels, you know, in certain places and all that. And so that's the intel that we were getting. Wow. And so, um, but we thought that they would raid the poultry plants. We had enough intel that we knew the date that they were probably going to have this raid. So actually the night before it happened, Bill said, I'm going to go to the office really early tomorrow because I want to see what happens. So he went at about six o'clock in the morning. And later the phone started ringing. He was there. I was not. The phone started ringing and we started getting, you know, we started getting calls about this raid, but it was at a ballast plant. It was at a company called um, 
Howard Industries in uh, Laurel, Mississippi. And they made ballasts, which are some type of electrical part that is attached to telephone poles. I'm not exactly sure what they are, but it's not, it was not a poultry plant. So they raided Howard Industries. That was the only place that they raided. And they arrested 592 immigrants. Wow. And so we got involved. The um, This organization called El Pueblo, they were involved. Um, they formed after we did, and they're on the coast. Um, and then some other people got involved. Some private attorneys got involved. And so we set up meetings in Jones County. And we also got some city officials or some people that work for the city in Jones County. And one of them was a black woman, you know, who, who helped us get space to see these people. Um, they, they helped rent space to see them and all that. So we got to see a lot of them and meet them. And we also, one, a significant thing that happened was that we got in touch with the lawyers for the plant and the people, I think it happened on a Tuesday or something like that. I can't remember the day of the week, but people were supposed to get paid that Friday. Uh-huh. Some of the people who were arrested. And as I said, there were 592 of them, mostly men and some women, but the women, they put ankle monitors on all of the women and they didn't send them to detention facilities. Um, most of the men went to detention facilities and they went to Louisiana because we didn't have any detention facilities then in Mississippi. And then were there raids uh, in between 2008 and 2019? There may have been some worksite enforcement. There were for, there were worksite enforcement raids, but not big like that. So tell me about I met met people who had been arrested when ICE came upon a work site, but there were just maybe, you know, 10 of them there or something like that. There were these small work site enforcement raids going on all the time. They were going on all the time, but they just weren't large groups of people. So last year, We did not hear about the rape. There was no rumbling or anything that we heard. We didn't hear anything. So the day of the raid, I was supposed to have a client from Carthage, Mississippi, come in with her parents. I had helped her get permanent residence and get citizenship. So she was going to bring in her parents to apply for permanent residence. So she texts me and says, um, I don't think we can come today because people are getting arrested all over the place and there there are raids going on. So should I still come or should I come another day? So she texted me. Then another client texted me and said, um, and she, she's a U.S. citizen. 
she had filed for her husband who was then a permanent resident. And she said, people are getting arrested, <laughs> you know, and I'm hearing about these raids. And she lived in Jackson. These raids were outside of Jackson. The other person lived in the place where they were doing the raids. So that's how I found out that this these raids were happening. And then they happened at about six or seven places. And they were all poultry plants. This is uh, last year being 2019? Last year in 2019, okay. there were about, well, there were supposed to be seven places that were raided, but one of them I think was closed. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't get raided. And that was, it was in August also. I can't remember the date, but it was sometime in August that they raided those places. So since we had had experience with a raid before, we helped organize a coalition. And actually, this friend of ours who was working with another group, he, he's not a lawyer, but he had been working in New York with this other group. Um, and he had come before to help us. And he's a very good organizer. So he he just flew to Jackson. <laughs> he flew to Jackson and said, I want to help. But it was the largest, after the one in 2008, this was the largest worksite enforcement raid ever. So Mississippi got hit twice with two large uh, worksite enforcement raids. So they took a lot of the people to Louisiana to those detention facilities because Louisiana has just built a lot of detention facilities. We have one here. We actually, we have two detention facilities, but I haven't heard much about the, the other one that's in uh, Tallahatchie County. It's in a place called Tutwiler. Hmm. And then the one that, um, you know, the one that our friend was at in Natchez, that one was not a, a, you know, an ICE detention facility, but it was under the Department of the Bureau of Prisons until recently, it was under the Bureau of Prisons. And most of the people who were in it were people who had, who had been convicted of of unlawful re-entry. They were mostly immigrants, but they had been convicted of, you know, unlawful re-entry and most of them were going to get deported mm -hmm. because they had already been convicted and all that. But then they changed that facility to put other people in there, you know, who had immigration court hearings. Mm -hmm. So it, transition from one type of a facility to another. And, and I think, oh, sorry, I think I can say this um, without revealing anything about our mutual client. Mm -hmm. That's Adams County. Right. Adams County. In right. It's called Adams County Detention Facility. Yes. And that's in Natchez. And Adams County used to be just a regular detention facility. And then they started putting immigrants 
who had been convicted of unlawful reentry and other uh, felonies, but they were immigrant. They were all immigrants, but they had felony convictions and they started putting them there. And then in the last couple of years, they started putting other uh, people in there, like people who were applying for asylum. Mm -hmm. And they were putting in um, Tutwiler in Tallahatchie County in Mississippi, which is closer to um, Memphis, they were putting people who were applying for asylum and they were having credible fear interviews there. But now they're not letting the people in the country that much, you know, they're making them stay in Mexico. So I don't know who's in Tallahatchie County. So I just want to um, interrupt and just say something so that people know that yeah. many people who are in Adams County and other so-called detention centers, I call them prisons or jails, uh, immigration prisons or jails, they are um, put in these places after legally coming to a port of entry like um, a bridge on the Mexico-U.S. border and asking for asylum, which is what you're supposed to do, perfectly legal, and then being so-called detained or imprisoned in these places without having committed any crime whatsoever, not even uh, entry um, to the United States illegally. So That's correct, Virginia. <laughs> that is correct. And so um, anyway, so some people from the raid from last year, some of the people were in Adams. And that's when I first started hearing that they were putting immigrants who had not been convicted of felonies in that detention facility. And But most of them went to Louisiana. So I have been to some of the detention facilities in Louisiana, the jails or prisons, as you call them, because that's really what they are. And, you know, because the people cannot leave. <laughs> that's something that that uh, people that the public needs to know that immigration and customs enforcement and homeland security, they call these places detention facilities. And they are detaining people, but they're treating them like they are criminals. And I was telling the reporter yesterday, I said, they haven't been charged with any crime. Most of the people have not been charged with any crime. And I said, usually you only put somebody in jail if that person has been charged with a crime or and is waiting for a hearing or has been convicted of a crime and is being punished you know, and who has a sentence. I said, but these people have not been charged with any crime for the, for the most part. Some of them may have been charged. And, you know, they can't, it's hard for them to make phone calls. They have to pay a lot of money to uh, get a card, to call people, they, and they can't leave. You know, so they're basically in jail. You know, and they're not being treated very well. And also uh, now the facilities are full of COVID and, you know, just all types of of 
things are going on there, it's difficult for them to meet with their attorneys because the facilities are in the middle of nowhere. And even though the one in Adams County is in Natchez, which is not, you know, I mean, Jackson only has 176,000 people and we're the largest city. So all the rest of the cities are a lot smaller than, than us. So, and, and the facility um, in Adams County that I visited for the first time earlier this year. Thank is, you very much. <laughs> it's still in, it's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, it's in, it's near Natchez. It's not right in Natchez, but anyway, it's in the middle of nowhere. The ones in Louisiana are really in the middle of nowhere. Um, and there aren't a lot of attorneys there. There aren't a lot of immigration attorneys any, you know, in, in near any of those places. Even though what I've seen is that some people have moved to Louisiana to live in these places because they know that immigrants are there. And you I've seen immigration practices pop up near these places because people know that the people are there, but you know, most of them are charging the people. Um, So it's hard for attorneys to visit there. And now with COVID, there's just, it's just a big mess. Yeah. Um, It's just a big mess because there's so many rules and regulations about when you can visit, who you can visit, you know, quarantine and all this stuff. Um, and sometimes people's attorneys, clients are in quarantine and the attorney doesn't know it. And, you know, then the attorney finds out and he or she is angry and, you know, and the clients are angry. They all want to get out. It's, it's, it's a mess, you know, and then there are problems with the immigration courts, as you know, um, the courts, some of the some of the detention facilities have their own courts. And they have judges in those courts on site. And I'm talking about the ones mainly in Louisiana, because those are the ones that I visited. Right. Um, but then there are others, as Virginia knows, that don't have the courts on site, but the cases are transferred to other judges who are in other states, like maybe New York or someplace else, where the client, the immigrant, is not meeting face-to-face with a judge because they're in the detention facility. The attorney may be in a totally different state (laughs) and have to meet with the judge on the phone and not necessarily even on video. Right. And this is the fate that a lot of immigrants are 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 suffering or are facing. Yes. And it is just a mess. So what we're hoping during the new uh, this new administration is that we can um, get rid of some of these detention facilities that some of the detention facilities will be closed. That's what we're hoping. And we're hoping that people will be able to get out on bond and uh, some with no bond 
because another thing that our listeners may not know is that these bonds are very, very high. They can be very, very high. The lowest bond is $1,500, but the highest could range up to 20,000. I don't know what the actual highest is, but I've heard of $20,000 bonds. And these are not 10% bonds like you would pay in a state case. So if the the um if ICE or the Department of Homeland Security and ICE for ICE by the way stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, but if ICE gives a person a $20,000 bond and the judge does not change that bond, then the person has to pay $20,000. It's not 10%. Right. It's $20,000 cash that has to be paid. And it's very, very difficult for somebody to come up with $20,000. If I had to come up with $20,000 cash to pay a bond, I would not be able to do it. So for immigrants, you know, who don't have a job, who, you know, don't have the money saved up, then they sit there in these jails. Go and, ahead. That's, and that's true for most of the people who are seeking asylum, presented themselves at a bridge, asked for asylum, have not been working in the United States, and who, you know, many of them walked from Ecuador a combination of walking and taking right. the bus. But I but I could go on and that's not yes. <laughs> the point of this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so um Patricia, thank you so much. I think um we have learned a lot here. I really am grateful for your time and all of the information you've shared with us. We do have a website and that is at your mira. Y-O-U-R-M-I-R-A dot O-R-G. And we have a Facebook page at uh, on Facebook, of course, Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance. Beautiful. Thank you so very much. This has been wonderful and really, truly inspiring. Um, all the work that you've been doing for 20 years now as an organization. Yes. Fabulous. Thank yes. you. I do want to say too that through Ayla, that I visited the uh, the detention facility at Dilly, Texas, and there I worked with uh, women and children who were seeking asylum, and we helped. And that was Mira supported me with that as well because they paid for me to go. Um, and that was a real eye opener as well, you know, going there, working with women and children, and they were mainly from um, Honduras, some from El Salvador, um, and other countries too. And what was interesting there was that there were several Black women who um, who were from Honduras. Mm-hmm. I interviewed one of them. I was helping them. We were all helping them with their credible fear interviews. And I was really touched by one woman who was Afro-Honduran who told me, you know, at the end of the interview, 
she said, now you're a lawyer. This was in this was a conversation in Spanish. Um, now you're a lawyer. And I said, yes. She said, I've never seen a black lawyer before. <laughs> I've never seen one. And she seemed to be so happy that she had me as her attorney, especially be, since I had been to Honduras. I spent yeah. 10 months in Honduras. And she passed her credible fear interview. I don't know where she is today. I think she was on her way to the Northeast United mm -hmm. States. She had friends or somebody living in the Northeast. So she was released and that was, she was in Dilly um, at the detention facility in Dilly. With a kid. Which they called, which they called the family and residential center. <laughs> Right. <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, family. That was in 2000, I want to say 18. I think it was before that. Anyway, it was a few years ago that I did. It. it opened in December 2014. So, okay. yeah. I was there a while after that, though. Yeah. Thank you, Patricia, so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to First They Came for the Immigrants, a new podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to give us a rating and review, which helps people find the podcast. Our audio was produced by Avi Hurwitz, who also performed the music at the introduction to the podcast. Outro music by progressive social justice rock band Swerve Left. Find us on Facebook, and be sure to like us and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.